I'm so glad to have Dr. Jeffrey R. Chadwick back with us to talk about this. He serves at BYU as the Jerusalem Center Professor of Archaeology and Near Eastern Studies, also as a Religious Education Professor of Church History and Jewish Studies. He also did graduate work in Israel at Tel Aviv University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem while completing his PhD at the University of Utah Middle East Center in Archaeology and Anthropology, specializing in the archaeology of the land of Israel, with a minor in Hebrew, Egyptian, and Aramaic languages. This is incredible. So he's traveled widely with his Jerusalem Center students all over Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and Turkey. He's published more than 70 academic articles, chapters, studies. I wanted to mention some books. I was excited to have him because of his book called Stone Manger, The Untold Story of the First Christmas. And these are on Kindle, on Amazon. You can find him a couple of articles, one at BYU Studies called Dating the Birth of Jesus Christ. And then later he wrote one called Dating the Death of Jesus Christ. And then another one, and they put them all together in Dating Scripture Events. You just go to byustudies.byu.edu and find these or to Amazon to find the Stone Manger books. But I'm excited to have him because I love to get closer to what really happened and how do we best understand Christmas and excited to hear especially about his insights about the manger today. So thank you, Brother Chadwick, for coming back with us. That's a prophecy of the birth of Christ right there, and Matthew recognized it. And here's the deal. Joseph and Mary must have been extremely disappointed to have moved to Bethlehem, built a house there, because the wise men found him in a house. They intended to live there. But then because of Herod's threat, they had to give everything up, move to Egypt, flee for their lives. And when they wanted to return to Judea, to live in the house that Joseph had built. They're told, go to Nazareth. And they must have looked at themselves and said, we went to all that effort to move to Bethlehem so that Mary's son could be known as born and registered in Bethlehem. And now we're going to have to live in Nazareth. And what Matthew sees is the silver lining in that dark cloud, because the prophets had said he'd be a Nazari, a Nazarene. He would be known from Nazareth. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's fantastic. And 700 years before it happens. And the wonderful thing about this is what it's telegraphing to us is the traditional way we've understood the Christmas story where Joseph and Mary are victims of circumstance. Having to go to Bethlehem to pay taxes and, oh, no place to stay. The inns are full, so you have to go to a stable and give birth there and all of these things. And the Roman soldiers, and which there weren't, by the way, any Roman soldiers in Judea at the time of the birth of Christ. There were no Roman legions and no Roman soldiers anywhere in Judea or Galilee. Herod had soldiers and he was a Roman client, but but there were no Roman soldiers there and no Romans were pointing their spears at anybody saying, you have to go to the city of your ancestry to pay taxes. Nobody was doing that. We've always understood the story wrong. Joseph and Mary moved to Bethlehem on purpose because they both knew who Mary's son would be. And they also knew that that son had to be born in Bethlehem. They knew their scriptures. They knew their... Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And this is purposeful movement to bring about the prophecy. Having done all of that and even built a house, 
right? Joseph was a builder. It says he was a carpenter. We naturally think of working with wood and making like furniture or something. This is not what Joseph did. He was a tecton. He was a tecton. And a tecton means a builder. You can see that the tect root is in architect. It's building. And stuff was built of stone, not wood. They didn't build houses of wood. And besides that, a carpenter who is a builder of wood, when we see Joseph like in the art carving chairs, that's a joiner. That's not even a carpenter. There are different English words for these things. A carpenter is a builder, but tecton would be more literally understood in the New Testament context as mason, a stonemason. Joseph was a builder. He knew how to build. And moving to Bethlehem, the first thing they would have done is secure property and build a house. And it wasn't ready by the time Jesus was born, because no house is ever ready on time. (laughs) But it was ready shortly after Jesus was born. And that's where the wise men found them, in the house there in Matthew 2, verse 11. Hmm. So listen, what if we moved into the Christmas story now? Absolutely. Because I have alluded to a couple of things that probably uh, listeners and watchers are going, what? That's not how I heard the story. So like Joseph built a house in Bethlehem? Well, how did he do that if they just arrived on the night before Jesus was born? And no, they didn't arrive, at least sometimes. the way I read the story. They arrived months in advance, and it wasn't being forced to go there to pay taxes. They moved there purposefully. So how do we get to that? Well, maybe it's time to go to Luke. Let's do it. We'll start maybe in Luke chapter 1, because I think this is really important. After the episode of Gabriel appearing to the father of John the Baptist in the temple, just for a moment, I think it's worth mentioning that the angel Gabriel appeared in the temple of Herod and gave revelation to a priest, an Aaronic priest, Zacharias. There's so much commentary about the temple of Herod not being a temple of revelation and spiritual things. I don't know if you've seen this around. It's wrong. It's taken from old, like, Protestant commentaries that don't think anything good could be Jewish. All I have to say about the Temple of Herod is, yes, there was revelation. Yes, there was the power of the Spirit. Yes, angels appeared in that temple and ministered to the Aaronic priesthood. And yes, Jesus called that temple his own house and the house of his father, and he loved it, and it was spiritual. It was a holy edifice. I'm so glad you are saying this because I have had that question come up and I've wondered myself if an angel waited for Zacharias to get that assignment and wanted to reveal that in the temple. And if Jesus cleansed the temple throughout the money changers, he reverenced it then. So I'm glad you're, you're saying this. They say, well, it didn't have the holy Shekinah, you know, the dwelling of the Lord. Yes, it did. Jesus made the temple of Herod his headquarters when he was in Jerusalem. He more or less co-opted the place from the yeah. Sadducees, which is what made him so mad. Here's the thing, and I think we said this one other time. If you were living 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel, and if you went to Judea at all, and you said, I would like to see Jesus, where would you go to find him? Absolutely, on any day, he'd be at the temple. And that is a great thing for us to consider now. If you would like to find the Savior, where should you go? Yeah. And where did the apostles go right after Jesus was resurrected and appeared to them? They went back to the temple. They co-opt the temple mount and make it their headquarters and make the Sadducees mad, but they do. 
When you get past Zacharias and you get into the story of Mary and Gabriel appears to Mary in Nazareth there in Luke one twenty six, you read down and what is the message that Mary receives? Let's go to verse 31. Actually go to 30 because our Catholic friends always quote verse 30. It's the Hail Mary statement. Well, verse 28, Hail thou that art highly favored. It's a beautiful statement. But if you get to verse 31, the angel tells Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. Right? Yeshua means salvation. And it comes to us in English as Jesus. He shall be great, verse 32, and shall be the son of the highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Hmm. Now, in that verse, in verse 31 and 32, you have three things that Mary now knows. Even though she's young, I think she might have been no older than 17, would be an average age when you'd start to be betrothed and get ready for marriage. But first of all, the name is prescribed. She knows what the name has to be. Jesus, salvation. That's a key. The second is she knows that he will be the son of God the son of the highest, of Elion in Hebrew. So she knows that this is going to be a different child. And later on, when she asks, how is this going to happen? I have not known a man. The angel says, leave that to God. But the third thing in verse 32 that's very interesting, it says, God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Here's David again. Your child, Mary, will be the Messiah. The throne means the king, that this child will be the king from the descent of of David. He will be the Messiah promised in Isaiah. So Mary knows those three things from this visitation of Gabriel, that her son would be the Savior, his name would be Salvation, he would be deity himself, the Son of God, and he would also be the Messiah of Israel, the Son of David. So now Mary knows this, and she goes to Jerusalem for a while to be with Elizabeth and then comes back to Nazareth a few months later, and she's fully carrying a child. And by the way, at this point, you skip to Matthew 1, because that's where the story goes back to when Mary appears with child. And so just have to put Luke 1 on hold there for a moment and go back to Matthew and understand that Matthew 1.18, speaking of Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And by the way, we understand that Jesus is not the son of the Holy Ghost, but that the Holy Spirit had been involved in facilitating the father to enable Mary to bear his child. But in verse 19 of Matthew 1, Joseph knows that's not his baby, but Joseph loves Mary, does not want to make any public stir about this thing that must be just destroying him. Because when Mary has returned from visiting Elizabeth, she is now a few months along, and it's obvious that she's pregnant. What's it like to be a young woman, 17-ish, in a traditional Jewish society in Nazareth, not married, but you're pregnant? How in the world must this have been for Mary? Because what is she supposed to say? God did this? No one can buy that story. And she's engaged. She's betrothed to Joseph. And that means that there was actually a contractual obligation. They were going to be married. Yeah, I was going to ask you about engagements, Jeff. What is an engagement like in Jesus's day? 
Well, uh, betrothal is more formal because you actually have a formal ceremony that announces the betrothal, and that is months before the marriage, up to a year before the marriage. So they already are contractually pre-married at this point, but they have not become married and no union between them would have been proper. So this situation where Mary has gone away to visit Elizabeth and then come back pregnant throws Joseph for a real problematic trouble for him because he knows he's not the father and she's pregnant, but they have a contract and he must love her dearly, but he also knows it's not his child and he cannot but think that she's been with another man because she's pregnant. So he's now going to cancel the marriage. It says in verse 19, put her away privily, which means he's going to have essentially a divorce of the pre-marriage contract. Yeah, he's going to do it privately. He doesn't want to hurt her, but he himself is so hurt. And as he's considering what he should do, of course, the angel appears to him in a dream. Now catch this, right? In verse 20, Joseph, son of David, Notice how Matthew will emphasize Joseph's Davidic lineage. And let me just back up here a little bit. Both the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, Matthew 1 and Luke 3, are both Joseph's genealogies. And they both emphasize that Joseph descends from David. Because in his mortal life, Jesus would be known by everybody as the son of Joseph. Even in Luke 2. When Mary speaks to 12-year-old Jesus, who had ditched them to go to the temple for three days, when they finally find him, Mary says to Jesus, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Joseph really was a father to Jesus. Now, Joseph didn't father Jesus, but Joseph was Jesus's father for all social situations, which means that Jesus inherits by virtue of nothing more than the most basic adoption law, Joseph's Davidic lineage. Some people have tried to make the Luke genealogy in Luke 3, the genealogy of Mary. This is an old Protestant commentary idea because they have to somehow get Jesus to be literally descended from David. And since Jesus is only born of Mary, Protestant scholars thought we'll interpret Luke's chapter 3 genealogy and make it Mary's. But Luke 3 specifically says it's the genealogy of Joseph. I'm sure that Mary was descended from David. Lots of people would have been. But the interesting thing about Luke is that it accents that Mary has Aaronic lineage. She's a kinswoman of Elizabeth, who was a daughter of Aaron. So the interesting thing is that Jesus will also have priestly lineage, Aaronic lineage. He's both a king, Davidically, and a priest, ironically. Wow. And being a king priest, he's a priest like unto Melchizedek. So it all works out. But the actual Davidic lineage, which would be necessary through the father to be considered the king of Israel, was the lineage of Joseph from David. And that's what both Matthew in chapter 1 and Luke in chapter 3 point out. So Jesus was legitimately the son of Joseph, if adoptively, in terms of the Davidic lineage by which he was recognized as the son of David. But now coming back, so you see in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 20 and onward, Joseph being called the son of David, it goes on to tell Joseph, hey, that woman that you are pre-married to who is pregnant, 
fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. That which is conceived in her is by the power of God, by the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, Yeshua, salvation. Now there, Joseph gets two things. Number one, this son is from God. And number two, the prescribed name. Yeah, that's interesting. They both get the name. Yeah. And it it is said to Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's the prerogative of the father. The naming of the son was the prerogative of the father who would preside over the bris, the circumcision. So when we get to Luke 2 and we see that Jesus is circumcised, right, and they call his name Jesus, that's Joseph doing that. He's fulfilling the command he was given. Yeah, thou shalt. So he is to be the father of that child, even though he didn't father the child, and he is to name that child Jesus, and he is to be that child's father. That makes sense when you look to it, Zacharias and John the Baptist, because he knew his name was supposed to be John, but he couldn't speak at that time. And they want to name him something else. And it says, we have no kin by that name. And then Zacharias writes to them, his name is John. That's his prerogative. And that's when he gets his voice back. Yep. When you do the right things, you get a voice. That's (laughs) one of the things you learn from that. Now, what is interesting about that, of course, in verse 25 in Matthew 1, is it says that he knew her not. He had no relations with her until she brought forth that firstborn, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph names the child. It will be now his child, even though it's fathered by God. But the point here is that there's one thing that Mary got told that Joseph wasn't told in this revelation, and that's that the child would be the son of David the Messiah. Now, the interesting thing is that if Joseph's going to raise this child, of course, Joseph's own Davidic lineage would devolve to Jesus just by every right. But in not saying to Joseph, he will be the son of David, the angel isn't telling Joseph the child's going to be the Messiah. He just says that's the son of God. So when Joseph marries Mary, which is what he does in verse 24. It says he arose from sleep and immediately went and said, we're going through with this marriage, which must have surprised his parents, must have surprised Mary's parents, must have surprised the whole village because they thought this girl's pregnant and she's been gone and she came back pregnant. And when he then agrees to marry her, what must the village have concluded? He must be the father. They've both done what they shouldn't have before their marriage. Can you imagine how difficult it was for this young couple? in a traditional society, to be thought of by the whole village, even maybe by your parents, of having engaged in sexual relations and produced a child before your actual marriage date, and to know both of them, to know that that wasn't the case. And now Joseph will go to Mary and not only marry her, but they certainly must have talked. And Mary must have said, oh my goodness, Joseph, I'm so glad that you know what happened now. And Joseph said, I know what happened. Everything is great. It'll be fine. But they're the only two who know this. But as they discuss this then, which any young couple will do, Mary must certainly have told Joseph what the angel told her, as well as Joseph would have told Mary what the angel told him. And when Mary tells Joseph that she was told, this child will inherit the throne of David, Joseph now learned something he hadn't learned from the angel. This child that God brought to Mary will be the Messiah. And then Joseph, 
understands exactly what he has to do because Joseph knows the prophecy in Micah 2 that the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. And that means that that young couple has to move. They have to go to Bethlehem. Their move to Bethlehem was on purpose. The way I read the text, it must have been months before Jesus was born that they made this decision. And that's where we then go back to Luke 2 and read the story of the move to Bethlehem. I love the idea of them making this decision together, talking through it and saying, we've got to go to Bethlehem. And of taking the situation that's given to you, which is a difficult situation, and saying, we will now make the word of the Lord and the work of the Lord work. We've been given this, and we're going to be anxiously engaged in bringing to pass this good work. We've always painted Joseph and Mary, a young couple, as being victims of circumstance. And yeah, the circumstance was that the Son of God was going to be born. But it's not Roman soldiers or taxes that drove them to Bethlehem. It is that they knew who this child was, and they knew where it had to be born. When you go now to Luke 2, if you understand those dynamics, you can see really what's happening. Because if we go to Luke 2, we now see this. Verse 1 of Luke 2, it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And if you look in your very good footnote there, it's not taxed. Enrolled and registered. Enrollment, registered. This is not even a census. A lot of more modern New Testament commentaries will say it's a census. It wasn't a census because census taking didn't really happen among the Judean people in the sense that we think of a census, where you're actually counting up people in any space. What this was, was a registration. Caesar had decreed that everyone in the empire should be registered, and this registration in verse 3 was registration in your city. You had to be registered in the city in which you were residing. And this was for everybody. Now, a registration was for all kinds of purposes to know what the population was. So it fulfilled what a census would be. But actually, all you had to do is total up the registration to come up with your number. We don't register people in the United States. So that's why we have to have a census. We have to count people. So we have to go do it. I served the mission in Europe. And even as a foreigner, I had to register in every city in Germany that I lived in. And if I moved from Berlin to Hamburg, I had to unregister in Berlin and re-register in Hamburg. And this is an old Roman Empire tradition that prevails through Europe, is registration in your place of residence with the government. That way, the government doesn't have to take a census. They know where you are. They can count you. They know where to tax you, et cetera, et cetera. So registration Good old European registration that goes back from the Holy Roman Empire of the Middle Ages back to the Roman Empire was what was enforced in Judea and Galilee. So people had to be registered even if they were residents of Nazareth or registered if they were residents of Jerusalem because that was Caesar Augustus's rule. Now read verse 4 in this regard. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the lineage of David, to be registered 
with Mary, his espoused wife. They moved to Bethlehem in order to become registered in Bethlehem, not to pay taxes. The old idea, and this is in all the old, old commentaries, that they were forced to be taxed. And that's because of the unfortunate translation in the King James Version that says that apography in Greek means taxed. It doesn't. It means to be written down. It means to be registered. But this old idea they wanted to be taxed brought about this entire fictitious notion that, oh, Jews were different than everybody else. They had to go to the city of their ancestors to be taxed. And that's why Joseph went to Bethlehem. No such thing existed. Absolutely not. First of all, that would be the (laughs) dumbest way to tax people in history. If you had to pay taxes by going 50, 100 miles to pay the taxes, nobody would do it. Who's, who's going to do that? They just say, oh, I don't live there. I'll just pay taxes here. I'm not going to go to NYC. Right. Joseph went with Mary to Bethlehem on purpose to be registered as a resident of that city, which means the decision they made was to live in Bethlehem so that when her child came forth, that child would be known to have been born there and would be registered as having been born there because every newborn would be registered as well. Fulfilling the prophecy of Micah. This is a deliberate thing they did as a young couple, and everybody thinks that Mary is coming to Bethlehem in her ninth month, probably in her fourth or fifth month. That's still not easy to travel, but it's not like we usually tell the story. We usually have her on a donkey, and she's just ready to give birth any day. Now, by the way, when you moved to a new place back in that age, there wasn't like a robust real estate market where contractors built houses and you went to a neighborhood and said, oh, I'd like that one. Land belonged to families for centuries and people didn't really sell houses readily or build houses on perspective for sale. You were either a longtime resident or if you were coming as a newcomer, you had to secure land and build a house. That's undoubtedly what they did when they arrived in Bethlehem, I think a few months before Jesus was born they would have immediately looked for land. We know, by the way, from Christian tradition where Jesus was born at the Church of the Nativity area. I don't know if it's right where that silver star is in the <laughs> in the cave underneath the Church of the Nativity, but he was born very probably in a grotto that was there in the region. But that would have been like the way southern outskirts of Bethlehem because the town center of Bethlehem was somewhat north of where Manger Square is in ancient times. Seems to me that what happened is that Joseph bought land really on kind of the edge of the village, probably land that was agricultural and maybe a few places were going up there, but bought land because they were going to live there. Jesus was going to grow up in Bethlehem and be known as the Messiah from Bethlehem. So they had to build a house. And what was Joseph's profession? He's a builder. Well, he's a builder. So this is something that he can do. Go to Bethlehem. They become registered there, which means they will be known as residents, which means they have to have a residential place. My assumption is that Joseph took whatever monies he had earned as a builder in Nazareth over years and years and bought a piece of land and began to build a house. And the house is not ready by the time Jesus is to be born that winter. That's verse seven. So they look around for a guest room because where are they living in the meantime while this house is being born? There are no hotels. Well, they're probably camping. On the land where the Church of the Nativity sits is a cave. 
and they call it the Grotto of the Nativity. And it's an area where there are several caves, by the way, down the street from the Church of the Nativity is the Milk Grotto Church and other caves. It's a place where there are caves. Caves are very natural in the hills of Judea. The high probability is that whatever land Joseph acquired had a cave on it, and this would be a natural thing to be. And it's also a perfect place to have a temporary residence while you're building the house, not very far from the cave on the same land. Have you ever seen anybody that lives in a trailer on the land while they build their house? People buy land and then they'll live in a trailer and then they'll build a house or they, they live somewhere nearby and they build a house. Well, Joseph and Mary were residing in a grotto. It's a great place to live in a summer. It's a little cooler in the day. In the winter, it's a little warmer. It keeps you dry. I have actually visited Palestinian uh, folks in the Jerusalem region who lived in a cave They had a refrigerator, a television, couches, (laughs) partitions in the cave so that they could have a bedroom while their house in Shimon HaTzadik was being built. I have photographs of it. This is not an unusual thing. So Joseph and Mary are, in the way that I kind of reconstruct this, living in this grotto, building the house, but the house isn't quite done. And when the time comes for Mary to give birth, Joseph seeks a place a little better than the cave. He seeks a guest room somewhere. They call it an inn in verse 7. And he said there wasn't one open. But the word in Greek is kataluma, which means a guest room. And when they look for a guest room in Bethlehem, there are none available. So she has to give birth in the cave. What's there at the cave? Well, if they've come from Nazareth, they probably have at least one animal. And that animal is going to need a trough. Probably that's one of the first things that Joseph as a stone worker does is he carves out a trough so that his animal can have water. It's, they're the water troughs because the animals will actually graze. There wouldn't have been any hay in the manger. I'm sorry to destroy this story. <laughs> because they didn't grow hay for animals because grass grows all winter. You've been to Israel. You know what Israel's like in the yeah. winter. It's like Ireland, right? It's green. It's lovely. Uh, There's no snow covering stuff. They're not harsh winters the way we have here. Animals graze freely all year long, whether it's on the brown grass of summer or the green grass of, of December, January, February, they're grazing. The trough or manger, the Greek word is fatne, which simply means a trough. It would have been evusi in Hebrew. This is not a stone box. By the way, I brought the Holy Family. Right. <laughs> and I brought a little clay stone manger that I had. That's what a manger would look like right there, except it would be like life size. Right? It would be a stone trough. And it was for water because while you could graze your donkeys or your sheep or whatever, they couldn't put their neck down the well to drink. You had to draw water for them and put water in the water trough. So the manger is a stone trough for water. A stone trough for water. Sorry about the hay. Sorry about the song, but that's what it was. And when the babe was born and they needed a safe place for this baby to be, what better place than a little water trough that the blanketed baby could fit in? It's not like one of those wooden things that could easily be knocked over by the donkey. This, these things are sturdy. Yeah. And you were telling us earlier, how many of those have been found? Hundreds, hundreds, you see them everywhere. Every archaeological site you go to, you see these old stone troughs and they're from biblical times or from medieval times because people have always been doing these out of stone. So probably on their property, 
is a cave and they're living in it. And when Mary has to give birth in that cave, instead of at a guest room somewhere in house, somewhere in the city, they lay the babe in the stone trough. And that becomes the sign that becomes the story in Luke 2, because that's what the shepherds are told. You go look for a baby. Well, there must be a lot of babies in Bethlehem. (laughs) Well, look for one in a water trough, and that'll be the one. Isn't that an amazing story? I have a friend who has mules and horses, and he also goes to the Holy Land, and he said, boy, the the animals chew up wooden stuff. Goats chew on it. Everybody chews on it. You said knock it over. Of course it would be a stone manger because the wood things don't last very long around animals. So now we love manger scenes. We love them, and I have like 25 of them. Half of them are from the Holy Land, and they all have a stable because we've all imagined that because a manger is there, because a trough is there, the actual word trough in Hebrew and Kfatni in Greek can refer to a trough for feeding or for watering. And because of who we are and because of European and American cold winters, we've always imagined that that trough must have been for feeding. That manger must have been for feeding. Mange actually means feed. We've imagined that there were animals present because there's a manger present. So if there's animals in a manger present, what must it be? It must be a stable. But stable doesn't appear in Luke 2. There's no stable there nor are any animals mentioned. Uh, I assume Joseph maybe had a donkey and maybe they had a goat because those are good for milk. But I don't think there were seven cows and a few dogs. <laughs> and and ox and lamb keeping time. <laughs> it's a grotto that they're living in. And maybe they have two mangers and one can be used for the babe. But there's no stable. It's a grotto. It's a cave that's being used as a resident. So there are niches that Joseph has probably carved where little oil lamps are burning, and there's probably a bed, and there's a stove, maybe just inside a small clay stove where you could cook and which would provide some heat, especially in the cooler winter for the cave. And Mary's on the bed, and the baby's there in the manger. And that's the very simple picture of what the real nativity scene was like in that grotto. Although in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, the grotto has been paved over with marble and with tapestries and everything. That's the very simple, realistic nativity scene. One young couple with a newborn child laid in a stone manger in a very simply furnished grotto or cave lit by dim oil lamps on a starry December night in Bethlehem while a house three quarters finished sat a few yards away. The house in which the wise men would find them because by then it had been completed and they'd moved in. Please join us for part two of this podcast. Welcome to part two of Dr. Jeff Chadwick on the topic of Christmas. Go back to verse one of chapter two in Matthew, which says, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. There's an immediacy in that verse. It doesn't say two years later they came to Jerusalem. It says when Jesus was born, wise men came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. Now, the east is going to be 
Mesopotamia. It's going to be either Babylon area or Persia area. And by the way, who were the wise men? We always debate this. They're called magi, which means magicians, really. But it actually it means mystics. There were Jewish mystics even back then. I think the wise men were Jewish. But they were maybe Persian or Babylonian Jews. But nobody else was reading Hebrew scripture other than Jews. So nobody else is going to know this, the prophecy of a star rising in the east that you see, like, say, from Numbers 24 or other places. And we know there was a real star. The Book of Mormon tells us. So these Jewish mystics in the east are looking for this sign. And when they see it, do they wait two years to go to Judea? Oh, there's the sign of the Messiah. Let's, let's wait two years to go see it. No, they go immediately. There's an immediacy to this story. And it's about five, six weeks to make the trip. So those magi in the east, those, I presume, Jewish mystics who recognize the sign of the star, and we know it was a new star. Whatever actually in the heavens happened, it looked like a star. And the Book of Mormon says there was one. And those guys in Babylon or Persia saw it. And they got ready as quick as they could. Takes a week to get a trip ready. And they made their way so that about seven weeks later, they show up in Bethlehem. And in verse 11, they find the young child with Mary in the house that's been finished, which Joseph and Mary had prepared in order to live in Bethlehem so Jesus could grow up there. By the way, how do we know that it's that long? How come it's not four, three weeks? Because if you go to Luke 2, Jesus will be circumcised eight days after his birth, but then he's presented in the temple 40 days later. Actually, that's six weeks. You have to wait for 40 days and go on the 41st or 42nd day. So it's six weeks after Jesus' birth that in Luke 2, the baby is taken to the temple. The wise men haven't arrived, and Joseph hasn't left Bethlehem. It's at least six weeks later that Jesus is taken to the temple. And then it's sometime very shortly after that temple episode in Luke 2 that the wise men show up in Matthew 2. And after they leave, Joseph is alarmed by the revelation and leaves Bethlehem in the middle of the night to escape to Egypt. And this young couple, who for now 11 months, 12 months, which includes Mary becoming pregnant, going to Jerusalem, being with Elizabeth, being found pregnant, and the stir around Nazareth because of that, the episode with Joseph and the revelation, they get married, they understand who their child will be, they move to Bethlehem, they go, they become registered residents of Bethlehem so that when Jesus was born, there must have been somewhere in the archive of Bethlehem, a document that said, Yeshua ben Yosef, nolad Bethlehem. Jesus, son of Joseph, was born here in Bethlehem. But the Romans destroyed Judea in 70 AD and burnt everything. And that means that any document that said Jesus was born in Bethlehem wouldn't exist. But in any case, their great plan and bringing about the righteousness of God and being there with a house so Jesus could grow up in Bethlehem is thrown into chaos then when having not been the victims of circumstance before, having not been driven by a taxation law to Bethlehem before, but having done that of their free will and choice, all of a sudden because of Herod's murderous intent, they do become victims of circumstance and have to go to Egypt. 
And then when they come back, it's still not safe to go back to Bethlehem and everything they had built. So they have to go to Nazareth and make a new life there where their family is. And Jesus would become known as a Nazri, as the branch, as the Nazarene. And this to me is what makes Christmas such a wonderful story because Christmas actually, the story is about Joseph and Mary. It's about the parents of Jesus who were the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ doing what ultimately he needed them to do. Christmas is about the birth of Christ and the gift to us in the world, and that's what we should remember. But the story itself is really the story of the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary, these two wonderful people who would raise the Messiah and Savior of the world. If you ever needed better examples of who to be like in mortality, Mary and Joseph are the two. And if you wonder why some of our friends, particularly our Catholic friends, revere Mary, there was never a greater woman in the history of the universe, Eve notwithstanding, than Mary of Nazareth. And there was never a greater and more trusted servant of the Lord, all the prophets notwithstanding, than Joseph of Nazareth, whom God the Father would trust to raise his son. That's great. So when I take groups to Nazareth, and there's a church there, the Church of the Annunciation, which honors Mary, and next door to it, as you both know, is a church for Joseph, honoring Joseph. I like people to know that these two, those people in the Holy Family, that woman and that man, are my heroes. The son of Mary is my Lord and my ultimate hero, but Joseph and Mary mean the world to me. And if you don't read it within this context, you don't see the sacrifice. Yeah. I wrote this all up years ago in the book that you mentioned, Stone Manger, the untold story of the first Christmas. And I was trying to find a muse how to write this story. Tell us why you wrote that book. Oh, well, I've been working for 40 years in Israel. In fact, this year, this is 2022, marks the 40th year since I began teaching for the BYU Jerusalem program way back years before we actually built the Jerusalem Center. It was a privilege that they asked me to teach there when we used to live at the kibbutz that overlooked Bethlehem, the Ramat Rachel. And I've been involved in the archaeology and the research of the land ever since, and it's been a, a great and wonderful blessing of a career. But I've always loved the Christmas story, and it occurred to me very early on that as an archaeologist, the only artifact of the Christmas story that you see in the text of the Bible is the manger. The manger is mentioned. A stable isn't mentioned because there wasn't one. And <laughs> other things are mentioned. There's no Christmas trees. There's no drummer boy that's mentioned. Okay. The wise men don't show up for weeks. So they're not there on the night of Christmas. The shepherds show up, but they do not bring their sheep because they never got there with them. So what's the only thing that is material in this story? It's the manger. Well, I always thought I would write a book called The Archaeology of Christmas and have it surrounding how you would tell the story from the perspective of a stone manger, which is what these troughs were made of. So when I finally wrote the story up, I decided maybe a book called The Archaeology of Christmas wouldn't really be interesting to people. So I decided to call it The Stone Manger. And the reason I wrote the book was that my mother of blessed memory, years ago before she died, and I'd been involved in Israel for over 30 years by then. 
said, Jeff, because she loved Christmas. She was the Christmas queen. She'd never gone to Israel with me. And she said, sometime I'd like you to just sit down with me and we're just going to take an hour. And I want you to tell me about the real first Christmas because we have these manger scenes and these decorations and they're lovely. But every time I hear you talk about it, it's very different than all my decorations. I'd love to do that with you. And I said, that sounds like such a great thing that we'll, we'll do that. Okay? And I never did. It just was one of those things we were going to do. And then she contracted a, a terrible disease called ALS and died rather quickly. As I was coping with that, the first Christmas after her death, I thought, oh my goodness, I never got to do that. As I was working through that the year after her death, I thought it's time to write down that story that I would have told her. What you can know and maybe assume about the Christmas story based on the context. So I did. And it was great therapy. Uh, so I dedicated the book to her when I finished it the next year. And it's really my gift to my mother, the story I hope that maybe she's heard of where she's at now. But that's how uh, Stone Manger got written. That's why I'm, I did not name it the Archaeology of Christmas. <laughs> I've always loved the idea, too, of Jesus being called the chief cornerstone and that his birth would start with something about stone. Well, that's the interesting thing, too, because Joseph was a tectone. That's the word used in Matthew and Mark to describe them in Greek, a tectone, a builder, and you built of stone. But Jesus was that, too. That's what Joseph would have raised him to be. Jesus was a stonemason. If I ever write a sequel to Stone Manger, I'm going to call it Stonemason. What was Jesus' life like before he became Rabbi Jesus? When you look through the teachings of Jesus, he very frequently employs stone architecture or stone masonry imagery in his teachings. He doesn't ever use wood carpentry imagery, but he uses a lot of imagery that has to do with stone and stone masonry. The chief cornerstone, you know, quoting Psalms, etc. The wise man builds his house. Builds his house upon the rock. He knows how to build houses. Jesus probably built houses. There are wonderful scholars that have done a lot of research into this that note that the great Roman regional capital of Sephoris was being built just north of Nazareth. And probably Joseph and Jesus worked as builders in Sephoris, which was a short walk from Nazareth. And if you ever wanted to ask yourself, well, what would Joseph have done for a living moving from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, building had to happen there. But within an hour and a half's walk of Bethlehem was the biggest building project in the Eastern world. Herod's temple was being built, and they needed builders. So there was work for Joseph to do. He had to commute like I do. It would take him an hour and a half to get to work. But Joseph could build and use his talents all he needed to at Jerusalem and work on his own house a day or two a week, and they would have money. Yeah. Because a builder made two dinars a day if they were skilled, and Joseph was. And Jesus, because he had this background, and I assume he worked as a builder, he even named his chief apostle. He called Simon, which was the apostle's name, Shimon, he called him Kepha. Kepha is an Aramaic word which refers to an unfinished stone, Kepha. And you see this in the New Testament occasionally spelled C-E-P-H-A-S which most people pronounce as Cephas, but the S is a Greek contrivance. If you take it off, it's actually C-E-P-H-A, and it's not C as in city, it's C as in county, it's Kepha. And Kepha then means a rough 
unhewn building stone that's only been roughly finished, a rough rolling stone, shall we say. So that's why when Peter's nickname given to him by Jesus is rendered into Greek, it becomes Petros or stone. Think of like petrified wood. Jesus never called his chief apostle Peter because Jesus didn't converse with him in Greek. Jesus called Simon Kepha. And that, when you see the Aramaic there, bleeds through in a couple of passages in John and a couple of passages in the writings of Paul, where they're actually giving you the Aramaic that Jesus used to address his chief apostle, Kepha. And in John 1, where this appears, it says, you shall be Kepha, and then it goes on to say, it, which interpreted is a stone, or you shall be Peter, which is interpreted as stone. What John was really writing is, you're going to be Kepha, and interpreted into Greek, this is Petros, a stone. Hmm. So Jesus is even using that stone building imagery with, with his chief apostle. It's interesting, too, that going on this, in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Simon, right, thou art Kepha, thou art Peter, right? And upon this rock, this Petros, will I build my church. Now, we've always gone to great lengths, and I love President Kimball, who made a, a, a huge statement about this back in my mission days, that the church is not founded upon Peter, but the rock is Revelation. Remember that? It's the rock of revelation that, that Jesus is referring to. Yes, true. But actually, at the very same time, it is Peter. It is that rock, that apostle. Because Peter was the chief apostle, the senior apostle, the one authorized representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church really is built on the rock of revelation, but it is built upon the person who is that rock of revelation. Christ himself is the rock first and foremost, but his senior apostle is that rock in perpetuity. Jeff, I wanted to ask you something out of the manual. There's a section called, I rejoice in my redeemer. And it says, Christmas is known as a joyful season because of the joy that Jesus Christ brings to the world. Even people who don't worship Jesus as the Son of God can often feel the happiness of Christmas. Ponder the joy you feel because Heavenly Father sent His Son. And then later on, there's another section called, His Name Shall Be Called Wonderful. So I would want you to comment on your thoughts on both of those sections. As I was saying when I told the story before, Christmas is just a time that we should be happy. And our climb, you need something to rejoice about occasionally with these short, cold winter days, but that's just our local climate. Wherever you're at in the world, the whole season of Christmas and the whole theme of Christmas is something to rejoice over. And this is simply the follow-up on what the angel said to the shepherds who came to Bethlehem to that grotto and saw Jesus in that stone manger on that very night. If you go to Luke 2, you see the words that the angel said to the shepherds. This is 2.11, Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, a Savior, Yeshua, that is Christ, the Messiah, who is the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in that stone water trough, right? But before they said all of that, 
they describe this as being good tidings of great joy. Verse 10, the angel said unto them, fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, and not in that era only the people of Israel, but eventually to all people. Now in our day, all people have the right to claim their Israelite heritage through the covenant. But the point is the joy of the birth of Christ is for everyone. Maybe even if they don't know what we are, uh, what we know, maybe even if they're not Christian, this should be the most joyous occasion because it's joy to all people. So that when you go back and you alluded to, I think Isaiah 9 there, right? The word wonderful. We read that wonderful scripture in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He'll be the king, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace of his, the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment. This is all joyous. It's also all very political. Going back to that earlier question of Jesus and his kingship and what the Messiah was to be, yeah, the Messiah is the king of Israel. But very often in our classrooms, and I I giggle a little bit about this because I often sit back and think, boy, I I wish I was teaching this class so I could get it right. And then I (laughs) think to myself, you just ruined the class, Jeff. Just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Let the teacher teach. That's my rule when you're sitting in somebody else's Sunday school class is sit on your hands. I do not make comments in people's classes because it's not my show. I let the teacher teach. Now I'm on your show now and you've asked me to talk, but if I'm sitting in a Sunday school class, I am not tearing apart somebody else's lesson. That's just not what we do. Let the spirit speak through the teacher that's been Mm, called. But occasionally I hear something like this when we talk about Jesus and his relationship to the, to the Jewish people in the new Testament, the teacher will say something like, and I'm exaggerating now, but they'll say something like, Oh, those silly Jews of that age, because They were looking for a political Messiah, and they didn't realize that that's not what they should be looking for. They should be looking for a spiritual Messiah, not a political Messiah. Well, no, a political Messiah is exactly what the scriptures predict. They predict he will be a king of Israel. They predict that he will have the government upon his shoulder. They predict that he will reign upon the throne of David. He will change the political order. And whether that is at his coming in mortality or whether at his second coming, the expectation is the same. Latter-day Saints expect a political Messiah. Now, we have the story of his first coming, and while we see that he was regarded as king, even by the Jewish people, on Palm Sunday, on the last Sunday of Jesus' life, he rode into Jerusalem in the biggest parade Jerusalem had ever seen to that time. And what were the people saying? Hosanna to the King of Israel. Hosanna to the Son of David. The populace recognized that he was the candidate to be this king. And it didn't turn out that way because the Romans killed him later that week with the collaboration of the Sadducees, the chief priests. And the great untold story of the New Testament is obvious on every page, and that is that Jesus was wildly popular with the Jewish people. He was not rejected by them, not in his lifetime. 
He was so popular that the crowds thronged him everywhere. You you couldn't get close enough to touch the hem of his garment most times. And the only place we see him cast out of on one occasion was his own hometown of Nazareth because of their jealousy. But everywhere else he went, he was not cast out. He was welcomed and Jerusalem welcomed him. It was a very small group, powerful political Sadducees that opposed him. But most of the Pharisees were intrigued with him, like Nicodemus. The people did not reject him. Sometimes, even in the videos, we depict the Jewish people as rejecting him and spitting on him. This did not happen. He was wildly popular. So why did the Jewish people not wind up recognizing Jesus as the Messiah? Well, because their understanding of what the Messiah would be is that Messiah would bring them freedom and redemption and throw off the yoke of their burden, which they understood as being foreign government that imposed upon their freedom. And everyone expected in the New Testament that Jesus would do this. No one expected him to die. Even Peter, when when Jesus indicated he would die, said, Lord, this be far from thee. You know, No one expected, even if they believed that Jesus was Messiah, and even if they believed he was Son of God, the way the apostles and many of his followers did, that he had been sent to die. That was the last thing they expected. They expected that if program went on another year or two, he would become the king of Israel. And when instead he died, this was a huge blow. Absolutely devastating. To the church membership, but to everyone who had looked at Jesus as the best candidate for Messiah ever. That expectation that he comes and overwhelms the foreign government and sets up the redeemed kingdom of Israel, Jesus didn't wind up providing that during his mortal life. Jewish people who in the New Testament were quite excited about him must have simply reasoned he would have been a great Messiah, but I guess we look for another. Because he didn't fulfill the expectation that the scriptures make of him becoming the head and king of the government and changing the order and bringing in an age of redemption. Now, we know that that's still coming at a second coming of the Messiah. So yes, we too expect a political Messiah who will change the order and usher in the age of redemption. But the differentiation between a first coming and a second coming is only something that even in the New Testament, the apostles gradually came to understand. They didn't understand it during Jesus's lifetime. They did not expect he would come to die. We have the advantage with 2020 hindsight of looking back on the New Testament and saying, oh, they shouldn't have thought that he was coming as a political messiah in his first coming. Well, nobody, even Peter, understood that his first coming wasn't the political change. That only came gradually. So our sometimes saying of those Jewish people, oh, they're so silly to have not understood what was going on. If we'd have been there, we wouldn't have understood it either because Peter didn't understand it until after it had happened. And none of the best of them did. So I like to tell folks that I teach, let's not be so smug and think that we're so much more insightful than people of past generations. The marvelous thing about the four gospels is that Jesus was wildly popular with those Jewish people. And the reason they did not ultimately accept him as the Messiah throughout Jewish history is because he did not do what the expectation was that was clearly there in scripture. It clearly was. And we have the advantage of knowing something more 
than the very best of the former day saints in the New Testament did not know when he walked among them. So if a teacher said something like that, they'd be they'd be correct in thinking that they were expecting a political Messiah, but that wasn't what Jesus was going to do at his first coming. Those prophecies of Isaiah, King of King and Lord of Lords and government upon his shoulder was an ultimately, that's a millennial expectation type of a thing. It's coming, but it wasn't the first coming. Yeah, right. Well, what, what you see in all of the messianic passages of Isaiah is this triumphant royal king messiah. There is essentially no prophecy about the coming of the messiah that points to his death that was recognized by anyone in that age, e- even the apostles. Now, we always point robustly to Isaiah 53 as a prophecy about the suffering and death of the Messiah. But in all of Isaiah, that's the one thing that's not like the other. That's the one suffering Messiah passage when everything else is triumphal Messiah. Well, as it turns out, Isaiah 53 was not understood by Jews of that era as pointing to the Messiah. And Jews today do not look at Isaiah 53 as a messianic scripture. It's called a suffering servant scripture, but Jews do not regard Isaiah 53 as messianic in the way Christians have come to recognize it. Now, the story of this and how Christianity in general comes to recognize it is in Acts chapter 8, when Philip meets the, the Ethiopian government official who's come to Jerusalem to worship. And that individual from Ethiopia, who, by the way, I point out was African and came as a African Jew, to Jerusalem to worship, and then was on his way back to Africa, back to Ethiopia. He meets with Philip, and the Ethiopian is puzzled as he's reading Isaiah, and he asks Philip, can you help me with this passage? And it says in, in Acts 8 that the passage he was reading was Isaiah 53. And the Ethiopian's question, he's Jewish, right? he says to Philip, of whom doth the prophet speak, of himself or some other man? But this very informed Isaiah reading African Jewish government official does not understand that Isaiah 53 is about Messiah. It simply wasn't a Jewish tradition that Isaiah 53, about a servant who would suffer and die, was about the Messiah. It's only in the aftermath of Jesus' death that the early church came to understand that you have to look at Isaiah 53 and see Jesus in that scripture as well as all of the triumphant scriptures, which is what Philip pointed out to the Ethiopian. And that's why Jewish people today don't see Isaiah 53 as messianic, whereas we as Christians do. But that's only with hindsight. Because all the New Testament saints were doing it in hindsight. It sounds like when you read the Gospels, they're like, oh yeah, he did say something about this, that he would be killed and rise again. And it's like they're writing the Gospels after this going, hey, wait a minute, he did talk about this. But I've often thought when we read about the triumphal entry, I've wondered what was going on in the Savior's mind is kind of like, yeah, thank you for this conditional support, but I'm not going to be what you're expecting this time around. I don't think he would have in any way been remonstrative of the crowds. It's hard to put yourself in the mind of anyone else and particularly to put yourself in the mind of God. But the way I might characterize that is that he may have thought, oh, what disappointment they're yeah, about to Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Is, uh, that would not have been, oh, well, it serves them right for not understanding, but I'm sorry at this time 
that you're not going to have what you expect, but it will be coming. And that's exactly what I thought. They're thinking, here comes, he's going to throw off the Romans. Well, not yet. There'll be another Rome to change. There'll be another Babylon to overcome. Isn't that how it is in life as well? We have certain expectations on the Lord. And when he doesn't fulfill them, we get frustrated when he might say to us. If you're as old as I am and served your mission 25 years before the year 2000, you were conditioned back then to look to about the year 2000 as maybe when you ought to start thinking about the millennial glory arriving. And we're as far from 2000 now in the other direction as I was from it on my mission (laughs) prior to 2000. And no, the millennium has not started. Jesus has not come back. And all those notions of like the six 1,000-year periods being six days and then the 7,000-year being the Sabbath, which would be the millennium, which means Jesus must be coming about 2,000. Well, we've all experienced that that wasn't what maybe we had been taught somewhat incorrectly to expect. And now we just wait patiently for him to do his work. Well, Hank, what you said fits with Joseph and Mary, doesn't it? Their expectation. They thought they would be going back to Bethlehem, and Joseph is warned in a dream. Got to go back to Nazareth. Yep. Yeah. To me, what that whole story going back to Joseph and Mary, and the way at least that I understand the story being very different than tradition, mm-hmm. not victims of circumstance, but anxiously engaged people coming to understand through revelation what they needed to do and being brave enough to go do it as a couple. What an example for every married couple, every young couple. Just go and do and serve and do what you need to do. But that's what life does to us. We'll do the best we can, and then something will broadside us through the intersection and change the direction of everything. And then what do you have to do? Start over and keep going. And that, again, is the story of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Start over and keep going. Man, the manual is really waxing poetic this time around. They did a great job with this. I want to read something from the manual, the second paragraph. Their hope began to be realized when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. The mighty deliverer of Israel was born in a stable, not really a stable, and laid in a manger. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't just the deliverer of the ancient Israelites. He came to deliver you to bear your grief, to carry your sorrows, to be bruised for your iniquities so that with his stripes you can be healed. This is why Christmas is so full of joyful anticipation. Even today, the Messiah came over 2,000 years ago, and he continues to come into our lives whenever we seek him. What would you add to that, Jeff, for our listeners to come away with? The one thing about all of this is that it all wraps up together because we would have this same discussion and this same joy at Easter. Uh, We would have this same joy and same discussion. If we were Jewish, we'd have it in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles. We do it anyway because we have general conference in the spring and the fall. So we have this same joy at all these great occasions. But particularly Christmas is important because of its advent aspect, the beginning of our hope, the birth of this great thing the birth of the king of Israel. Yeah, that joy is first and foremost to Israel because Jesus would be the king, the Messiah of Israel, but because everyone would become Israel, but because we would gather Israel from all nations, 
this joy is to all nations. And our combined message as Latter-day Saints is refining itself into a better understanding of that. Uh, One of the things that the spreading of the Christmas joy is an instrumental part of is in our message to all people as we gather Israel, all people. The Christmas message is just the beautiful annual way that we phrase what our entire life is about, which is that we are the servants of our King, Jesus Christ, the Master, and we bring that covenant to you with the message of his first coming and the expectation of his next coming. I testify that these things are true, that Christ was born in the humblest of circumstances to Mary and her husband, a young couple who were valiant in their faith, and that he grew up to fulfill his destiny in saving us at his first coming, and that he reigns over us now and will reign personally upon the earth in a day to come. That's what I always remember with Christmas, because that's what the angels said. Unto you is born this day a Savior, Christ, the King, the Lord. And this will be a joy to all people. It's my testimony that this is true and that he stands at the head of this church today and that through that rock who is his present chief apostle, he reveals to us our joy and our assignment to spread this with all. May we have a Merry Christmas. May we spread this joy to our family, to all around us, and radiate it so that everyone can see it would be my prayer for everyone. Wow. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, everybody. We want to thank Dr. Jeff Chadwick for being with us today and giving of his expertise. This has been so fun to see the real story of Christmas and to see it in this new way has been really fun for me. John, I know it's been great for you as well. Got a page of notes and it's beautiful. And getting some of those interesting facts just makes it more beautiful and joyful. And as you said, Jeff, more admiration for Joseph and Mary. Yep. Hey, by the way, I would also say that I still love all the Christmas traditions and anything that I've said that (laughs) may conflict with what's a joy to you. Don't let that bother you at all. Keep your stables, right? I'm not an expert on Christmas, okay? I'm just a guy trying to understand it better. If anyone out there understands it differently from me, the Lord bless you. I'm completely satisfied with that. Just God bless us, everyone. We want to thank again, Dr. Jeff Chadwick, for being with us today. We want to thank our executive producers, Steve and Shannon Sorensen, and our sponsors, David and Verla Sorensen. We hope you'll join us next week. We're starting a brand new year of the New Testament. We hope you'll all join us for that full year. Come join our team of Follow Him. We have an amazing production crew we want you to know about. David Perry, Lisa Spice, Jamie Nielsen, Will Stoughton, Crystal Roberts, and Biel Cuadra. Thank you to our amazing production team.